Deuteronomy 32. And in Deuteronomy 31, God tells Moses to prepare the, a, a song. And then in 32, we see that song. And it begins by talking about uh, how God has uh, been good and how his people have responded. And then we see this song that the people are to learn uh, to help them when they find themselves in a time of sin. And so we're going to read most of the rest of the chapter, kind of beginning in verse 7. If you're able to, you can stand with me in honor of God. And as we read his word together, feel free to sit down if you need to do that as well. Verse 7 begins by calling the people to remember who God is and what he's done. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, burying them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. That's how God provided for them. How did they respond? But Jeshurun, that's Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Then how did God... Respond to their forgetfulness. Verse 19, the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see that their end, what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations on the mountains of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them, and I will expend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague with, and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them, and with the Venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoors terror for young men, young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. And then we see hope for God's compassion. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces, I will wipe them from human memory, had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand. Lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. 
For they are a nation void of counsel, and there's no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight unless the, their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine in recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone, and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I, I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And Father, please continue to be gracious to us. Help us to live the lives of repentance and faith in your son Jesus that you call us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Poetry. Poetry allows us to express ideas at a deeper level than just kind of everyday normal conversation would allow us to do. Through poetry, you can communicate emotion at a deeper level. You can kind of convey meaning that that draws upon all the senses. So for example, a lot of times during the week, someone will ask me, well, what what are you planning on preaching on? How, How do you feel like the sermon is going? What's kind of the goal for this week? And I might say something, well, you know, I hope it goes well, or uh, kind of a little nervous. I'm going to try to try to preach this passage. Something kind of kind of simple. But what if you were to ask me, hey, uh, what, what are you hoping for this week in the sermon? And I were to quote the beginning here of Deuteronomy 32, this, this poetic introduction, I would say, well, thank you for asking me that. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. You'd be like, oh wow, this this is going to be a pretty good sermon this week, I guess, you know, (laughs) sounds pretty good, right? Through poetry, you can communicate things in a way that you, you can't communicate through normal everyday prose. Music 
Music is often something we use to accompany poetry, and, and music helps make poetry more memorable. We can, can take poetic concepts and set them to music, and we make a song, and then we have the ability to remember truths in a different way. I was hearing some people talk yesterday about trying to memorize a psalm, and they talked about how they were listening to this, this psalm set to music, and it was helping them in their process of, of memorizing. I, I could say just titles of songs, and if I said titles of songs, you would remember the, the lyrics, the, the poetry that kind of make up that song. Amazing Grace. I say Amazing Grace. You, you can remember the lyrics. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I, I once was lost, but now I'm fine. Was found. Was blind, but now I see. My favorite hymn, And Can It Be. Song and can it be? Someone says those words, and I think about, you know, died he for me who caused his pain. It's it's very helpful. I could also, you know, say the titles of other songs of, of poetry, maybe uh, not quite as helpful. I could say the phrase "Who let the dogs out," and there would be a different type of bad poetry going through your mind. Or if I was feeling kind of mischievous, I I might say the the lyrics that the songs of lyrics that. Later this afternoon, you'll be thinking about it. It's a small world, after all. Or call me, maybe. Or if I was feeling really mean, I might say the word Friday. Or what does a fox say? Or the song Mickey. You know, all sorts of, one of those will be in your head this afternoon. You can, you can uh, let me know about it. Uh, but it'll be in my head as well now, unfortunately. Well, God wants us to have this memorable song. God here in, in Deuteronomy 32, as we saw a few weeks ago from Deuteronomy 31, he says, look, there's going to be this, this time in the future, and in this time in the future, my people are going to be walking in disobedience. They're going to, to get spiritually fat, and they're going to turn away from me. They're going to despise my covenant. And there's this song, Moses, that I want you to teach them. And as they, as they think about this song, it's going to help them in the future. It's going to help them to turn and walk in obedience to me. Remember a few weeks ago, we said this. We said, you know, we enter into the relationship with God through faith. We recognize that we're sinners. We recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And we respond to that by believing in Jesus, by saying, okay, I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. I'm trusting in Jesus. But we don't just say, I'm placing my faith in Jesus and then walk the rest of our lives separated from faith. We continue on a, on a daily basis to place our faith in Jesus. We trust in him. We trust in him. We trust in him. Part of placing our faith in Jesus Christ is repentance. And so that moment that we become a Christian, we, we recognize, okay, this, this path that I'm on is not a good path. This is a bad path. This path ends in destruction. This is not a path that I want to continue to walk on. It's not a joyful path. I, I intellectually understand that these things that I'm doing are sinful I, I have this, this, this hard attitude that says, okay, God, I, I want to change, and so I'm deciding to, to turn from the sin and turn to you. That's, that's repentance. I'm making the decision by God's grace to turn from sin. I no longer want to do it. But just like faith, that's not just something that happens one time. The rest of our Christian life is to be a life of repentance where we're walking along and God brings to mind sin and we encounter sin and we say, whoa, 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 this, this is sin. I don't want to walk this way. I want to believe in Jesus and trust in him so God help me. And so we, we continue to live a life 
of repentance. Now, this song, Deuteronomy 32, is a song that can help you and I in that process to live a life of repentance. Not penance, trying to to pay God back, but repentance, constantly recognizing we're sinners, we need Jesus Christ, we're turning to faith in him. This is a song that's helpful for the prideful and it's helpful for the humiliated. It's helpful for the person who's prideful, who's kind of going along life, not thinking about the relationship with God. This song helps them think about, oh, you know what, I, I am not where I need to be in my relationship with God. God, help me. This helps the person who's been humiliated, who says, okay, I, I've been separated from God because of my sin, and, and I've, I've done this thing, and there's a sense of shame. This helps the person who's been humiliated as well. It's a song that talks about God and his grace. It helps us think rightly about God, his grace, ourselves, our sin. Here's kind of the main thing that I want you to grasp. Again, this is a song that helps a person who realizes their sin. The main idea that I want you to see is this. God will be compassionate to you because you are his and he is God. As we go through this song and we're made aware of our sin, what I hope that you see is, look, God is going to be compassionate to me. He's going to be compassionate to me because I belong to him. I've placed my faith in him. I'm I'm now connected with him, and he is God. His glory is at stake here, and God is going to be compassionate to me because I'm his, and he's God. It's who he is to express compassion. So let's go through this this text here, and what we're going to do is we're going to kind of look at each section, and there's going to be kind of a question we ask to go with each section to help us think about these things rightly. As you begin the the first part of Deuteronomy 32, by the way, the first six verses, there's this this question that God asks at the end. He's talked about who he is. Moses has talked about his teaching. I mentioned, read that already. He talks about who God is, who they are. And then verse 6 says, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? This is a, a charge. God is great. They've dealt corruptly with him. And now they need to self-reflect. They need to, to think about, hey, is, have I treated God rightly? Am I thinking rightly about him? Am I thinking rightly about myself and my sin these questions, these, this, this song, and the questions that we're going to ask are questions you can ask of yourself to help you live a life of repentance. They're questions you can ask people who you're discipling, people that God brings in your life to help them live the life of repentance we talked about a few weeks ago as well. Here's the first question from the first section. The first question is this, what has God done for me? The first question we can ask ourselves, if we're going to rightly think about how to live the life of repentance, is what has God done for me? Look here at these, these first, uh, this first passage, verses 7 through 14. If there's one word that kind of goes with these verses, it's the word remember. The word remember. It's the first word of the passage. He says, look, I want you to, to remember something. And, and again, he's using poetic language to express his love. When we were in Deuteronomy 7 through 9, we talked about God's gracious choice of Israel. He chose Israel not because, you know, the Israelites were like super good looking. He didn't choose them because they were super intelligent. He didn't choose them because they were more moral or they were more numerous. He chose them simply by his grace. And, and here he paints this, this picture of, of God dividing up all the nations and then God in his grace 
choosing Israel. And then he, he describes his goodness to Israel, not just in choosing them, but, but um, providing for them, them being the apple of his eye, wrapping his wings around, his, uh, his wings around them. All of these, this imagery of God's special care and protection for his people. God has been good to them. There's a special providential choosing from Genesis 12, and now that, that special care and protection continues. So, a question we ask ourselves is, look, what, what has God done for me? Now, we need to be careful how we ask that question. In other words, we're not asking that question like, um, well, I have, a, I have a friend who used to give me these, these amazing gifts. They weren't expensive gifts, but they were incredibly thoughtful. So, you know, I'd, I'd say some comment, and then at my birthday, I would get this, this little present that perfectly encapsulated that conversation we had had months ago. And it was just, it was, uh, it, it was really annoying because I, I, I've always, I would get to his birthday and if I remembered it, first of all, then I'd think, oh man, what has he done for me? I, I feel guilty. I got I to make sure that I somehow am able to, to give him a present of, of equal thoughtfulness. Now, that was not his, he would not have cared, but that's kind of how I felt, right? Okay, what, what has he done for me? There was this guilt-inducing obligation. That's not what we're talking about here. He's not saying, remember, remember what God has done. As you remember what God has done, hopefully that's going to cause you to, to straighten up. And do stuff for God. It's more like this. When I was a, when I was a little kid, sometimes I get scared when mom and dad would leave the house. Mom and dad would go out for a date, or dad would have some sort of work function, and I, you know, have a babysitter come over, and and I, I'd get scared. Right? I can remember kind of crying sometimes when mom was getting ready to leave, and she's getting ready to leave the room. And I remember one time she said, "Okay." Uh, Okay, Daniel, uh, here's, here's, a, here's your teddy bear, and I'm going to hug your teddy bear, and uh, I'm going to give it to you. And, and as you, you hold your teddy bear, you can remember mom and dad, and you can remember how much we love you. Remember how we, we read you stories, we play with you, we, we care for you. We're, we're not going to leave you because we, we love you. And so you can look at the teddy bear and, and, and just think about how much mom and dad have provided for you. And as you think about that, you know that we would never leave you. I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure Dad did not hug the teddy bear. Um, I mean, after all, I was a senior in high school. But um, <laughs> so uh, you know, but it's, it's that type of remembering. Okay, it's okay. I'm, I'm going to remember the good things that God has done for me, and as I remember who God is, I, oh yeah, yeah, this is this is who God is, and it's not this it's not this guilt inducing obligation. Okay. He sent his son, Jesus, so I should probably, uh, probably go see Debbie Joe and sign up for children's church. I mean, you should do that. But, um, but not because it's this, this guilt-inducing obligation. It's because you know, God, God's a good God. But he loves me. Look at, what he's, look at his goodness to me. This question causes us to think deep thoughts about who God is and what he's done. As I ask myself this question, I'm going to think about how all good things come from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Uh, Titus 2, 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In 1 Peter 2, 9, it talks about how he's, he's saved us. He's, he's given us the ability to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As we ask ourselves this question, what has God done for me? 
It causes us not guilt-inducing gratitude, but worship-producing gratitude. The psalmist in Psalm 71 says, I will hope continually, continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. I could start telling of God's righteous acts. I could start talking about God's deeds of salvation right now, and I could continue next week, and I can continue next week after that. I could have all my sermons from now until the moment I die prepared just talking about the righteous acts of God and his salvation. That's, that's, it's worship-producing meditation. What has God done for me? As I think about the things that God has done for me, as the Israelites are called to think about the things that God has done for them, the response should be a heart of worship. But that's not what happened. Here's a a second question for us to think about. Question number two, how have I responded to the goodness of God? As we look at verses 15 through 18, we see how Israel responded. It says Jeshurun, that's a name that God had for his people. It means upright one. It's kind of like a nickname, and it's, it's kind of used uh, a little bit in a, with a sad tone here because his people weren't upright. He, they weren't, he, he had these special people, this like a special name for them. Instead of responding to this special favor that sh- God had shown to them with worship, they respond with idolatry. It says, at the end of of the last section, it talks about how he had provided for them with physical food and just all this abundance. And now there's this picture of of Israel, just this this spiritually fat people who instead of responding to worship are are self-seeking. If the word from the last section was the word remember, the word from this section is the word forget. They don't think about God and who he is how he's cared for them. They scoff. They stir him to jealousy. They provoke him to anger. And it says in verse 18, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. As we've seen in Deuteronomy, what's, what's the pattern that's supposed to happen? The people are supposed to know God. They, they know these theological truths about who God is. And then as they know God, they, they love him. They love this God that they're finding out about that has revealed himself to them. And then as they love him, they obey him. And as they obey him, they experience his blessing. Well, now they're not knowing God. They're not remembering who he is. They're what? They're forgetting. And as they forget, they don't love him. They love themselves and their idols. They walk in disobedience. We're going to see they experience curse. I'm convinced that the root of our sin is forgetfulness of God and, and his glory and his beauty and the beauty of his son Jesus. This last week at youth camp, we talked about how Jesus is better. So here's, here's Jesus and as we're conscious of the fact that Jesus is better, it causes us to walk in obedience to God. As we forget who Jesus is and what he desires us to do, we forget that he's better, we begin to walk in disobedience. So God gives us this opportunity, and we're in a situation, and, and we have the ability to, to, to walk in obedience, or we have the 
opportunity to walk in disobedience. We choose to walk in disobedience when we choose to forget that Jesus is better than whatever else it is we're choosing. Now, if Jesus were always with us, this would be perhaps a little bit easier. You know, I'm, I'm sitting down with a friend and I say, boy, have I got a story to tell you about so-and-so. And when I'm finished with this story, you're going to think less of them. Now, as I do that, what am I doing? I'm gossiping. And if Jesus were right there next to me, what would happen? I've got this story right. Uh, never mind. Um, how you doing? How's your family? But what do I do? I forget about Jesus. I either consciously or subconsciously forget to think about him and his beauty and his glory. And I, and I choose something else. What are some things that happen as we ask ourselves the question, how have I responded to the goodness of God? I believe asking ourselves this question forces us to stop being so pridefully ignorant of our sin. It forces us to think, okay, how how am I responding to the goodness of God? And Am I responding in a way that reflects my, my love and my worship of his son Jesus? I've been trying to prepare for Galatians, you know, the next book that we're going to be studying. I think I mentioned this before. I've been meditating upon the, the text, and sometimes when I'm running, I'm, I'm listening to Galatians. And uh, recently I was listening to Galatians 5, and there's that section in Galatians 5 that talks about the works of the flesh. And, and Paul gives this list of the works of the flesh. So this is what happens when a person is living a fleshly life and not living by the Spirit. And he gives this list, and it's a list that all of us can find something in this list that is true for us. He talks about, he says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. He says, strife, enmity, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, divisions, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then he says, and things like these. In other words, that's, that's a pretty extensive list, right? And, and then he says these words, I warn you. I'm running. I, I hear him list these words. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how extensive each of those things are and how all of those things in some place in my heart I can, I can find examples of. He says, I warn you. It's like he said, I warn you, Daniel. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I, I stopped, it just stopped me in my tracks, literally, right? God, please, I don't want those things to be true of me. I don't want you to be able to say, Daniel, you, you do these things. These, these things characterize your life. But what happens in my life. So often, I, I just kind of go through life not even really thinking about the ways in which I've failed to respond to the goodness of God with obedience. I'm not thinking about how I'm guilty of impurity or of sensuality or of, of idolatry or of anger or of jealousy. I'm just not thinking about those things. Asking ourselves this question, how have I responded to the goodness of God, is, is a question, it's a wake-up call. It's, it's the mom who says, wait a minute, um, I, I'm a selfish person. 
And, and in my selfishness, this is not of God. This is, this is a work of the flesh. I have not responded to the goodness of God well. It's the engineer who's, who's at work and she realizes, wait a minute, my desire for recognition is, it, this is a work of the flesh. This is not from God. It's, it's the young man who, who comes to his senses and realizes, wait a minute, this, this looking at pornography is not just something normal that people do. This, this, is, this is a work of the flesh. This is not of God. This, this is not what God would have me do. This is not how I'm supposed to respond to the goodness of God. Asking ourselves this question forces us, forces us to become aware of our sin. It's forgetfulness of God and his glory and beauty that causes us to walk in unrepentant sin. If we're going to live a life of repentance, we need to ask ourselves this question. Here's who God is. This is how he's been good to me. Now, how have I responded to his goodness? The work of the flesh is not the response that I should have. Now, here's a third question. What consequences am I, what consequences am I or others experiencing because of my sin? What consequences am I or others experiencing because of my sin? The next part of the song describes what God does in response. So he's been good to them and and they've responded by becoming spiritually fat and rejecting him and pursuing their idols. And it says that God sees this and he acts, he spurns, he allows them to face the consequences. His glory has been attacked and he's going to deal with it. And there's just, again, just poetic language that helps us understand the depth of God's response. He says, for example, in verse 21, uh, they've made me jealous with what is no God. They provoke me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. You know, you've worshipped that which is no God. I'm going to uh, bring punishment from those who are no people. The, the nations that I hadn't chosen provoke you to anger with, with foolish nation. It talks about the, the judgment that they're going to face, the, the fire that's going to devour the earth, disasters, physical disasters upon his people. And in verse 20, 25, we see that no one is spared. The old, the young, all experience the consequences of the sin of Israel. Everyone feels the effects of sin. You can't keep your sin constrained in a nice, neat little box. There's this game that uh, the girls in our family enjoy playing more than the boys because they kill us at it. It's, it's called uh, Nerts. It's kind of like Dutch Blitz. And what you do is everyone has a deck of cards and you're playing all these cards. There's like a pile of cards you're trying to, to empty and, and you're playing all these, everyone's playing all these cards on the pile and you're stacking them up from low number to high number and it just everyone's playing all at once and it's just crazy now if the game is over very fast i can sometimes do okay so i'm not completely humiliated but when the game goes on for more than a couple minutes and there's cards all over the place i i just i just have to give up i i can kind of look at one pile and say okay can i you know let me i'll be in charge of keeping this pile neat while you guys win the game right um it's it's just chaos when it comes to sin, some of us are under this delusion that we can keep our sin kind of contained. 
You know, maybe I'm a Maybe I'm I'm a person who struggled with pornography, and I think, okay, I I can just keep this area of my life locked away. I can deal with it, and it won't affect the other areas of life. Or I have this situation where I'm I'm not uh, our marriage is not where our marriage needs to be, but I I can kind of keep that contained. I can keep my work separate and my family life separate, and all these other church life separate, and, and and the thing won't bleed into the other. That's that's delusional. Our sin has consequences. We can't keep it in nice little piles. It goes chaotic. And and unless we deal with it by God's grace, we see the consequences of sin. And this question, what are the consequences that I'm experiencing because of my sin, forces us to look carefully at our life and say, wait a minute, I've, I've thought that this thing over here was separate, but now I'm realizing perhaps this this thing that's happening in my life over here, maybe this is the result of God trying to deal with this sin in my life over in this area. It forces us to think about, you know, why are things going the way they are in my life? Why don't I have joy? Why don't I have peace? As we look at Scripture, what do we see about some of the consequences of sin, biblical consequences of my sin? Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Maybe there's been a, a, a relationship, you've, you've had bitterness in your heart toward this person. And you ask yourself these three questions. What has God done for me? He's shown me forgiveness. What have, how have I responded to the goodness of God? Well, with bitterness and anger toward this person. How am I experiencing those consequences? Well, what consequences am I or others experiencing? I feel separated from God. And I, and I thought that this bitterness that I have in my heart toward my, my parents or this bitterness that I have in my heart toward this friend was, was something I was keeping locked away. But now I recognize, you know what? When I, when I say I feel distant from God, I, I think one of the reasons I feel distant from God is beca- because of this sin over here. This is a crucial question to ask ourselves. Loss of reward, difficulty in life, all these things are the result, the biblical consequences of sin, a hardened heart. Proverbs 5 is a passage that describes the, the, the terrible consequences of, of the adulterer, just as an example. It says, it says hey, hey, young man, don't, don't engage in immorality, or at the end of your life you'll groan, your flesh and body are consumed. You'll say, how I hated discipline, my heart despised reproof. And then he says, I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. I'm, I'm about to be exposed in my sin. And sadly, the biblical consequences for sin not only affect ourselves, but as we ask ourselves this question, we recognize, look, my sin is hurting not just myself, but it's hurting other people as well. I had this sin that I committed, and I thought I could keep it contained. I thought I could, here's my sin in this nice little box, and now my kids are feeling the effects of dad's sin. My, my wife, my friends, my church, my, unless we deal with sin, Others are going to face the consequences of our sin as well. Now, God has a purpose for them in that. It's not discipline. God is gracious to them. It's for his good and their glory in those circumstances as well. But we bear we, we culpability for that. What are consequences of my sin? Now, up, up to this point, these questions, the song, this, the song isn't all that unique. But now we come to the uniqueness in the song. Something very unique happens next. Here's the next question. Fourth question is this. Why 
can I be confident that God will show me compassion? I've seen how God is good. I've seen how I have rejected his goodness. And I've seen the consequence of my sin. Now, this song is saying that, that there's a possibility of returning to God. The, the, the song was designed for them as they're in exile to recognize that God is going to continue to be gracious to them. Why? Why can I be confident that God is going to show compassion? I can be confident because God's, God's glory is on the line. Look what happens here in verse 26. It says that God says in this song, I, I, would, have, I would have exercised complete annihilation of them. I would have cut them to pieces, wiped them from human memory, but there was a problem. And the problem is if I did that, the nations that I used to deal with my people would have thought, we did this. And God isn't good and God doesn't love his people. God had connected his glory to his people. And so he comes to this moment where he removes all other power. He strips away so that, so that there's no one else they can trust in. And then God acts to show his power. It says in verse 36, The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Then God acts and delivers and has compassion so his people will see his goodness and he will receive the glory. When I lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we experienced this, this strange phenomenon where the, the emotional makeup of the city was based upon how well the Dallas Cowboys had done the day before. So like on a Monday morning, there was a there was like an emotional um, atmosphere. And, and, if, and if the Cowboys had won, you know, people were kind of walking with a little step. And they're, you know, we're Dallas. And if they had done poorly, it was like, oh, I can't believe. I can't believe how bad. The, you know, we've, we've dreamed of this. And now another season down the drain. When, when, you, when you put on a jersey of a team, you're, 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 you're allowing yourself to receive either the, the glory of their success even if you just sat on the couch eating pretzels, watching the game, yeah, we did it, we won, we're part of this, or you experience the shame of defeat. I can't believe it, we're lost. There was, a, there was a study actually that came out a few years ago that talked about how in communities where the team had won, on the next day, the people ate more healthy, and on days where the team had lost the day before, the next day people ate lots more junk food and, and were unhealthy. And so the conclusion was if you want to be healthy, cheer for a good sports team, which is helping me as I kind of debate between the Cards and Cubs being from Texas. But I won't tell you which way, but you know. What does this have to do with God? God has tied his glory to you and to me. Romans 8 says this. Romans 8 gives us confidence as we think about God's compassion. In Romans 8, God says that, that there is no condemnation for those who are what? Who are, who are in Christ Jesus. You and I, through faith, have united ourselves to, to Jesus. We're, we're in him. He's in us. We're in him. As God looks at us, he sees his son Jesus. And so how can I have confidence that God is going to show me compassion? Because his glory is on the line because I, I'm his child. We go into the last part of chapter 8, and he says, he says, Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're, we're in Christ. We're, we're conquerors. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I can be confident that God is going to show me compassionate because I'm his, and he's God, the God who saves. His glory is on the line, and he's going to show me compassion. It's a beautiful truth for those who are prideful and need to be made aware of their sin, and those who become humiliated and need to have confidence that God loves them. The last question to think about is this. How can I respond right now in a way that God will be glorified? How can I respond right now, today, in this moment, in a way that God will be glorified? We come to the end of the song, and, and God, as he's teaching this song to his people through Moses, encourages them to realize this great truth that, that he is God, and he's going to receive the glory. He's the one who is going to, to kill and make alive, wound and heal. He, no matter what happens, he is going to receive the glory. Oftentimes our temptation when we find ourselves overwhelmed with sin is, is to, to dwell on the past. If only I hadn't done this. If only I hadn't responded in this way. If, if only this hadn't happened. If only if I could just go back in time and, and make this choice different and, and, then, and then I could do the right thing now, but instead I'm, it's just ruined and it's over. That underestimates the glory of God. And the question we ask ourselves in every moment of our, of our lives is to say, okay, I recognize that I am a great sinner, but I have a great God. How right now in this moment uh, that I find myself, in what way can I glorify God? Not how should I have glorified God? Not I wish that this were different, but right now, how can I glorify God? How can I turn from sin and place my faith in Jesus Christ my, my loving Savior. Annoying songs get stuck in our mind and go around and around and around. It's hard, hard to get them out of there. But here there's, there's a beautiful song, this, this, this glorious song that communicates this great truth. God will have compassionate, God will have compassion on you. Because you're his, and he's God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for how you've provided for us in your son Jesus. We pray that by your grace we would walk in obedience to you. That in your grace you would continue to to love and, and provide for us. And that you would allow us to continue to walk a life of repentance. I pray that we'd meditate on these questions and be changed. I pray that you would help us to communicate these these questions to others in in times of pride or in times of humiliation and to see that the great need to continue to walk in faith and repentance. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.